brethren, what are your hands doing? The hands of a Christian are going to be different than the hands of the Gentile, the hands of the world, the hands like you had that, that were part of the former manner of life, the hands held by one who possesses the new man who's been transformed. They look different, brethren. They're different. And I'll tell you this, you that are looking for spouses, I told you this before, lazy men and lazy women are a curse in the family. Lazy husbands, lazy fathers. Listen to this, Proverbs 10.26, like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes is what? A sluggard. Come on now, help me out. A man, a woman that knows God and knows how to believe God is not dependent on anybody. And you ought not be satisfied with being dependent. Somebody keeps sending you money and you know they don't want to. You know they just feel sorry for you. You know they wouldn't do it if you had your own. Anybody can get in a tough spot. But I'm talking about living like this year after year and not doing what you need to do to change it. How many know that there's a lot of cases like this are just simply because of rebellion and laziness? They're not just victims of circumstance, they're victims of their own rebellion. All right, well, welcome back. And today we're going to be talking about hard work. Now, before you turn the video off and uh, run deck for cover, I'm going to pray for us. Hello, Wetwired listeners. Sean here. In honor of Thanksgiving in the United States and to recognize the inestimable contributions of the bloodthirsty religious zealots known as the Puritans, their work ethic, and their pilgrimage to North America, we're releasing an extremely special re-edit of the very first episode of Wetwired. So we hope you enjoy episode one, Productivity Porn and the Protestant Ethic. Welcome to episode one of the Wet Wired podcast, Productivity Porn and the Protestant Ethic. I'm Sean Andes. And I'm Julian Paul Butt. You want to tell me about some Weber? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's this German fellow um, who is... No jokes. This is very serious. <laughs> and, and crucially, his name is pronounced Max Weber. That's right. Mr. But Weber. spelled... Weber, yeah, which I recently discovered uh -huh. <laughs> because much of my knowledge comes from books and not from human interaction, uh -huh. apparently. Public education. <laughs> ah, yes. Albuquerque public education on top of it. Yep. <laughs> well, uh, Max Weber is, is really the centerpiece of what we're discussing right now. Uh, not only did he observe a lot of the same things uh, that, that really became monstrous in present day in 1905 when he published his seminal work, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. Now, at the time, we're in the turn of the century. Uh, keep in mind, we're within a few decades of the invention of the modern bicycle as we know it, the modern motor car, the uh, invention of the airplane. I mean, 
we've got a lot of things happening around the turn of the century. And at this time, we're only about 100 years deep after roughly 100, 150 years deep after the Industrial Revolution. And Weber is observing this ethic, this uh, sort of a ethos that seems to drive the economic system in which we live in the Western world. And he's asking the question, what are the origins of this ethic? And we might even say this mythos that's, that's driving, uh, as he describes it, the spirit of capitalism. And he observes a few things that are concurrent at the same time that that predate capitalism by a bit and and kind of become the driving force. Um, we can observe that Marx, on the one hand, is describing a culture that responds to changes in technology and capital and the means of production. And Weber is turning that on its head a little bit and saying that the culture instigates this. And personally, I think it's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. But Weber is describing a attitude that was really necessary to create this industrial capitalism that would be born from this cultural transformation. He ascribes it to the Protestant ethic. And he also ascribes it simultaneous to that, concurrent to that, interwoven with that, however you want to understand it, with a new rational, scientific, systematic approach to capital and labor. Right. He, what, which, he calls that rationalism, I think. He calls it rationalism. And uh, he, I mean, if, and when you're reading the, uh, the uh, uh, sort of uh, author's introduction to it, he, he goes at length to describe the distinctions between uh, what he's calling the Occident and the Orient, but it's really the Western world and the rest of the world is really what he means. Yeah, he doesn't mean the East. And he means everything else. <laughs> he means everything else. And, and, he, and he was kind of, at the time, keeping in mind, this is 1905, he's sort of complaining uh, <laughs> that he doesn't really have access to uh, the sort of uh, uh, literature and information that he wants, at least it's not even translated for him right. in, in German or whatever languages he might otherwise speak, I don't really know, that uh, he's limited in his information of the rest of the world. But nevertheless, the information that he is able to access and the books and uh, that he's reading and all the rest of it are all suggesting that we have this sort of systematic approach and scientific approach that is novel globally in the Western world, starting with the Hellenic world and moving forward, receding, and then coming back, uh, notably with the Renaissance and the scientific revolution and the industrial revolution. And this sort of rational approach to institutions and to creating the society uh, not out of emotion and not out of the whims of, of monarchs and the rest of it, although that was absolutely happening, uh, but more creating these institutions and creating this world based on uh, what we now understand to be the scientific method or something similar to it that was to a large degree novel at the time, even though elements of it have always existed. Uh, but that thing coincided with the Protestant ethic. And to understand the Protestant ethic, we need to kind of understand the schism that happened. I mean, it, obviously, we're starting with Luther, 
and and the schism between Catholicism and uh, Protestantism. But what needed to happen was upending traditional values. And prior to the development of capitalism, what traditional values to a large degree meant were that people generally believed the idea that you work to live, you don't live to work. And that idea just really didn't provide the right cultural motivation and fuel uh, that would spur on the kind of industrial growth uh, that would come in later centuries. Uh, so where do we get this transformation of, of this ethos? We have an observation that Weber made uh, where he was, was talking about how uh, agrarian, feudal, uh, pre-industrial, pre-capitalist uh, uh, land landowners would raise the peace rate uh, for working land, and they would hope that it would increase the productivity. And what he observed, or what they observed, uh, was that the opposite happened, where they increased the pre peace rate, and people ended up working less because they had to work less to satisfy their daily needs and wants. And the attitude was that you would work to satisfy your needs and maybe a little bit more. And then once you're finished satisfying those needs, you quit working. And that idea is not the modern ethos. And uh, the, the spirit of it um, was centered around the idea of the calling. And the calling is almost, I, I think, a, a Disney-esque idea of my life's purpose that, that was kind of a novel concept at that time. Uh, we can quote Weber as, as saying, um, and I edited this a little bit, but Weber said, the calling is an obligation that the individual is supposed to feel and does feel towards the content of his professional activity. In this, we find that the calling is really em emblematic of, we can see it embodied in, in uh, uh, how we introduce ourselves in the United States so very often to to other people. Hi, hello, how are you? Something about the weather, pleasantries. What do you do for a living? There it is. That's your calling. What do you do for a living? That that's that's our opening greeting with people. And and it's it's meant as sort of defining yourself as a being, as as a character, is this is who you are. Is what you are. Right. This is who you are. That is kind of the idea of or the the Protestant idea, and I, and I don't even want to say Protestant per se, because the ideas that are really influential here are coming out of Calvinism a little bit later and, Pro, and uh, uh, Puritanism. Um, another quote from Weber uh, that kind of exemplifies this is, the fulfillment of worldly duties is, under all circumstances, the only way to live acceptably to God. And we can understand this to mean that uh, the harder you work, the more God is happy. And 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 sacrificing yourself, uh, I forget the Latin term for it, but there's a specific Latin term that uh, that essentially suggests that self-sacrifice is the way to appease God. And this particular self-sacrifice is through hard work. Uh, a little bit later, Weber talks about uh, another another Calvinist concept where he says, brotherly love since it may only be practiced for the glory of God and not in the service of the flesh, is expressed in the first place 
in the fulfillment of the daily tasks given by the Lex Naturae, which is one of the Calvinist works that's pivotal. And in the process, this fulfillment assumes a peculiarly objective and impersonal character. So we have this introduction of a rational approach to God, which again is kind of unprecedented. It, it's, it's sort of, well, rationalizing God in many ways. Uh, so we, we, we kind of introduce this, this huge shift from the Catholic transactionalism uh, and, and free will. So for example, think of indulgences and confession, things like that, where you're interacting with the church to gain favor with God. But uh, there is really this prevalent idea of free will where, you know, you, you can you can commit sins and then you can redeem yourself. And maybe at the end of the, your life, you know, they weigh the scale between the two things and whichever whichever is heavier, then that's how that works. Really coming out of Calvinism, we have this idea of predeterminism that God is omnipotent, omniscient and has set everything in motion and has a master plan. So anybody who's going to be a sinner has is already predestined to be a sinner. And anybody who's going to have grace, which is a huge emphasis in this discussion, is going to have grace. So either you're going to hell or going to heaven, but it's already going to happen. It just has to play out. So how, how does this work then with encouraging people to work more, even though everything has already been established? You know, the, everybody's destiny is already written, but so how can, you know, how, that, that's the thing. That's what, something that I've always like sort of wondered about that never quite makes sense to me is, you know, how this idea of grace really like really takes place, really uh, uh, is introduced into this incredibly deterministic worldview. Because my understanding is that grace is something that comes outside. It's extra, it comes from outside. It's extra. So you have this person who is already on these train tracks. This is how their life is going to go. But yet we're telling them to accept God and, you know, that this sort of grace is going to come in and influence the course of their action. So they're going to be, I mean, maybe they, they can go off the rails and be inauthentic to themselves and grace will keep them on the tracks. And hard work is one of the ways that you can attract the attract grace. Yeah, I, I too think it's paradoxical. I mean, it, it, I, just, I, I don't know. I don't really know that it's so much that it like to me, it doesn't seem so much like a paradox. It just seems like there's missing pieces in my in my picture. And I don't know if it's explained anywhere, you know, like how honestly, that works. Uh, I didn't pick up anywhere along this journey an <laughs> answer to that question. And uh, I was I was really stumbling over that exact question myself. But sadly, I didn't I didn't reach any. Yeah, Any well, reconciliation. I mean, maybe the Calvinists don't either. Yeah, like it's just like maybe they just keep <laughs> that's on. Probably true. Maybe they just keep on keeping on, and that's just how it goes. <laughs> it's a yeah, mystery. I, I mean, I, well, that actually is an inter is interesting point because uh, the keep on keeping on idea is one of the pivotal uh -huh. principles that uh, formed the Protestant ethic. Um, Endure the suffering and persevere. That is one of the key tenets that really forms this ethic. Um, and, and, you know, related to the idea of uh, this sort of transaction with God. This is, this is another thing where in, in the Catholicism that 
this that is the root of this schism. Uh, we, we have this sort of relationship with the church as an intermediary with God. And Protestantism is much more individualistic, whereas the, the preceding Catholicism really had much more of a, uh, uh, not only the transactional character that I was describing before, not only with God, but transactional with the church as an intermediary through God, but as also a sort of collectivist type of understanding, where even though the church itself was a central authority and was not really collectivist, it was, it was understood to be relatively collectivist in its outlook and its worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the truth of the matter is irrelevant. The worldview is the important part here. And the, the Calvinist approach and the Puritanist approach is much more individualistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, much a, a, it's a one-on-one Zoom call with God. Mm-hmm. And that is a radically different idea that also drives the kind of rugged individualism narrative that we see emerging in the United States or uh, later uh, emerging in the United States. Like everywhere right now? And and yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and elsewhere That's, as well. And like, and, and I mean that that rugged individualism, you know, w- was well and good when we're talking about Davy Crockett and then Teddy Roosevelt and people like that. <laughs> but now, you know, we we look around and we see, you know, uh, like every every type of example of you know of self made man. You know, so you know that there are people at least that want to convince others that they're self made, and you know. And then at at the far extremes, we see some really fringe people that have this idea that they are, you know, an entirely sovereign citizen and somehow exempt from the laws of the country. You know, this is this is the uh, the 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 current furthest extent of rugged individualism in the U.S. is the sovereign citizen movement. There's not even individualism or sovereignty. I mean, first of all, I, I know it's it's all an imaginary I, we, thing. We can beat a dead horse yeah. about that one. Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll talk. We'll, we'll we'll talk about sovereign citizens at some point. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, on that point, I mean, we so what we also kind of find here is uh, the concept of uh, brotherly love and and uh, worship of God through work. Uh, uh-huh. So. Um, Weber has another comment on this where he says the enjoyment of and, and, and not only that, but but also the idea of work as a form of salvation mm-hmm. is really the emphasis here. Um, so Weber offers us this insight from the point of view of the Calvinists. The real moral objection is to relaxation and the security of possession the enjoyment of wealth with the consequence of idleness and the temptations of the flesh, above all, of distraction from pursuit of a righteous life. In fact, it is only because possession involves this danger of relaxation that, it's object- that it is objectionable at all. So what, what's going on here is that we think of capitalism as being driven by greed, as the, as the, as the ethos of capitalism which there's plenty of that to go around, but greed has existed long before capitalism. What Weber is talking about here is two things going on. A rational approach to labor, 
where it, it becomes scientific. And he's also talking about the idea of uh, scientific in, in terms of this, this sort of detached approach to it. Uh, but he's also talking about uh, having wealth is not a problem. It's wealth making you lazy. That's a problem, uh, which is an interesting distinction. Have as much wealth, wealth as you like. That's not a problem. Just as long as you don't get lazy. Uh, and in fact, uh, a little bit later on, he, he elaborates on that very same thing. Another quote, not leisure and enjoyment, but only activity serves to increase the glory of God according to the definite manifestations of his will. Waste of time is the first and, in principle, the deadliest of sins. So there's a vilification of leisure itself mm -hmm. going on in this ethic where <laughs> you, you can't even take a break right. without going against God. Right. And you're not and allowed that's, to. That's a, you're not allowed to get tired. You're not allowed to want to change your career because your job's unfulfilling. None of it. This is all <laughs> none of it. Yeah, none of it. There, there is there is no possibility for it. And there is also this railing against the uh, you know at that point you know this sort of developing leisure class of people who you know the, these you know sort of wealthy landlords you know often coming from nobility that controlled these large estates and didn't really do anything with their time. They just had people working for them that farmed fields and did jobs and they just made money off of all of this. I mean, it was, it was really, um, uh, uh, it was a rentier society, you know, they, where the, you know, they had, you had this entire class of people that was simply collecting rents from people, from others. Yeah. They were able to exist simply because they had resources. They had this land that other people would rent from them. We could even say that part of this philosophy, uh, which which is divergent from the the previous traditional ideas, um, or traditional at that time, the previous ideas really had human beings and individuals as much more malleable and temporal. When uh, we're discussing this from the point of view of of this Protestant ethos. This Protestant ethic, the idea of predeterminism also says that a has an essentialist view of the individual, where uh, to take, for example, the idea of the criminal as we understand the criminal today, and you you look at a person who commits some sort of a crime, uh, some sort of a behavior that is contrary to the social norms or the laws or whatever it is. Maybe they steal or kill a person or doesn't some even kind matter. Of violence or whatever it is, they break a law and. They, they, they commit this act in one instance, you know, perhaps it takes five minutes, perhaps 10 days, whatever it is. This point in time where they commit this act is when that person is a criminal. Mm -hmm. They're criminal while they're committing the crime. But this point of view says that as soon as that occurs, not only are they a criminal for the rest of their lives, mm -hmm. but they were a criminal before that point. Even before they committed the crime. Even before they committed the crime. So they're essentially a criminal. It's, it's part of their essential being. And we, we see the influence of this idea in, uh, in the industrial complex of the United States and, and the attitudes in the United States towards the uh, so-called criminal justice system. I mean, right. we, we have uh, roughly a quarter of the world's population of inmates uh, despite having 
I, I don't remember what percentage, but a very small percentage of the whole world's population. Right. Uh, and on top of that, we have more, not only per capita, by, but also by volume, more inmates than any other country on earth. I mean, that includes China, North Korea, Iran, pick a country that we, we might easily vilify for uh, locking up prisoners. We've got more by a lot. Yeah. And uh, that's despite, it's extraordinary. And, and I think that all of this speaks to this same attitude. Uh, where the idea of sinfulness and the idea of criminality mm-hmm. is also intertwined with the idea of work, where uh, we we other people we mm-hmm. we cast people out of our group uh, based on this exclusionary metric of whether or not they're 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 like us are they are they part of our tribe and this metric in this this ethos really says that if you're lazy then you're a problem and uh how we define lazy is are you working yourself to the bone no you're lazy mm-hmm. do, do you have two jobs and six side hustles no wow you're lazy <laughs> <laughs> and and this is a real problem uh for uh Anybody on the other side of that, obviously, um, but it's really quite beneficial to those who own the capital and those who are at the top of this uh, emerging or soon to be emerging economic system mm-hmm. uh, out of this effectively this this merchant class that's that's at that time in Europe, dominated by Protestants, mm-hmm. um, or at least according to Weber. I, I didn't fact check right. on that. I'm not entirely sure. But I, I think that the narrative still holds mm-hmm. essentially correct about what is the origin of this myth. It definitely seems they're like they're driving it, and and I, I think that it's sort of anecdotal, but it it may be it may not it may be not so anecdotal for to to look at the example of the nations that are historically associated with Protestantism in just in Europe, and then the European nations that were that continued to be associated with Catholicism. the The environments in these countries are very different. Yeah. The the attitude that that the average person has towards towards work is very different. The attitudes that the societies as a whole have towards work are are very different between say the Netherlands and Spain or yeah you know Germany and Italy yeah Germany is definitely changing and and you know this and there is there are there is an influence of. Of secular humanism and so and uh, and socialist ideas in Scandinavian countries specifically that has led to increases in in vacation time and decreases in work hours, finding more reasons basically to be away from work and yeah. and to not make it the central you know the the central defining focus of everyone's life. 
You know, I know Germany has experimented with four hour or four day work weeks. And I don't, I don't know if that's continued or not, but I know at one point it was experimented with. And I know that in the Netherlands, there's a great deal of vacation time available. The attitudes in countries, you know, like Spain, where work is really not the main thing that people do. The main thing that people do is socialize. Yeah. You know, that's my understanding that it's very similar in Italy as well, is that the main focus of life is not what you do for a living. You know, this is not everybody's main concern. They have a very different uh, place for work. You know, even these Scandinavian countries, I, I think that they, they have definitely changed their alignment and how they consider the, uh, the, the place of employment in a person's life. We really haven't done that in the United States. Well, yeah, especially in the context of when, when you're clocking out, when the, when the whistle blows and, and you're going home, here uh, we, we really have uh, a total integration in our lives between work and non-work. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, we talk about work-life balance and things like that. But it's not really it's, it's all not bullshit really going on. It's bullshit. <laughs> the work life balance thing is sort of like, you know, that, that is definitely something that uh, that catches my attention whenever people say this, because I hear work life balance or I hear people say it. But what I what I what how I interpret that every single time is not how I can balance my, you know, my my home life versus my work life, but basically how I can meet these responsibilities in my life or, you know, the, the, like, or obligations or, or, you know, even, even desires as far as, uh, you know, like parents wanting to spend time with their children and spouses wanting to spend time with each other, how I can manage to accommodate that and still work more than my coworkers do. You know, this is, I mean, it's, it's really like every time people talk about work-life balance, it's like, they're typically talking about finding a way so that they can work more without impinging on you know on on these like this very narrow uh slice of their life that they spend with family and friends which is treated as an exception which is treated as sort of uh, um uh a relief yeah from what they're doing and and also i mean even this expression work life balance it is there is so much um privilege that is that is built into that statement and, you know that there that is a luxury and, you know yeah. to be able and, to and typically to, we hear that term in in middle and upper middle class absolutely uh, office space you don't hear you don't hear anybody talking about work life balance when they have a uh, when they have three jobs you know one's at a fast food restaurant the other one's cleaning an office building after hours and then you know when they're not doing those two jobs they're driving an uber yeah, and 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 uh, I'd love to hear them tell their boss at the fast food restaurant uh, that they need a little more time for their work life balance. Yeah, I mean, like their work, their their work and their life are out of balance. I mean, this is not. Yeah, this this is they don't have the luxury of having of having a conversation like that. And I mean, for a lot of reasons, you know, for a lot of socioeconomic reasons, and you know, Absolutely. a lot of a lot of labor and and management reasons as well. They have no power in any of these situations. They have no leverage to be able to demand things for themselves that they want. And that's what I mean by this by by work-life balance being an absolute luxury. 
that one that one catches my ears in the same way as when I hear somebody trying to talk about you know find your passion or something like that <laughs> and you know follow your heart you know like this is like you pompous motherfucker like you don't know what you're talking about you are coming at this from a position that is like that is totally detached from the reality that the vast majority of people on this planet will ever experience like, the, the, yeah, like and, 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 they and I love the I love the crunchy idea. E- even in this I'll country, just pack alone. up and go travel the world. Oh, sir, fuck! Like hashtag van life. <laughs> hashtag you know living my best life. <laughs> that stuff, like it, really rubs me the wrong way. Yeah. If 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 uh, do you have do you have more vapor? Uh, just a bit, yeah. Okay, because uh, I, I did want to say this is all like a great segue into talking about the uh, the ne- the next segment here. So, but go ahead. <laughs> oh, I, oh, I know. So, I, I got I got a few more. I have a few more things to to discuss with Weber, and in fact, a a quote that's just on the nose for what we're just talking about. Oh, good. Um, and especially with the socializing part, he says the most trifling actions that affect a man's credit are to be regarded the the sound of your hammer at 5 a.m. in the morning or at 8 at night heard by a creditor makes him easy six months longer. But if he sees you at a billiard table or hears you in a tavern when you should be at work, then he sends for his money the next day. <laughs> and and this is exactly uh, what we're talking about, where you clock out, but you never really clock out. Right. Because you're you're creditors and your landlord and everybody else uh has their eye out i mean uh but but not just that even if they're not looking it's 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 part of this cultural pressure uh to constantly be performing as such and then uh, just a couple of other things i want to mention here one one thing that like just to, to 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 follow up on that is that this 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 is a virtue ethic when we talk about you know this idea of of work versus leisure or you know as they would say work versus laziness then we're talking yeah. about virtuous you know we're we're talking about the person who with virtue and the person without virtue you know this is this is this is virtue and sin for you know for obvious reasons we associate this protestant ethic with 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 working specifically but when if we look at it in terms of of being a virtue ethic, then we apply this all over the place, very you know, very calmly and without even noticing it. We apply it to people that are overweight. People that are overweight yeah. are not allowed to eat. You know, this is this is the virtue ethic. They are they are by definition not virtuous people because of their because they're considered to have overindulged, and overindulging is treated exactly the same way as over as not working enough. They haven't worked enough. They've, they've been too leisurely and that's why they're overweight. And so they're always, they're, they have these expectations that are applied to them very quietly, regardless yeah. of all, all of this, you know, body positive messaging that is being, is, is that people are attempting to push forward into, you know, into social, into social situations the only reason they that they, they they feel like they have to push these this mes- these body positive messages is because the prevailing message the underlying current of the, the entire society that we live in is that they are not is that overweight people are are inherently not virtuous and so yeah. 
they is they are overweight because they have not worked enough. And and the same this this same uh, uh, virtue and or or even to take it back to Weber a bit contrast between grace and sinfulness mm-hmm. uh, as such really contributes to the underlying myth of meritocracy that drives yeah. the myth of capitalism itself. I mean, uh, the idea that everyone gets what they deserve. Mm-hmm. So yep. if you're wealthy, it's because you worked hard and all the rest of it. And if you're poor, it's because you're lazy, despite the fact that you're working three jobs that are harder than anything that the guy in the office is doing. Typically. Some of this has actually changed because we don't have a leisure class anymore, though. The, the, richest, people, yeah. the richest people that we, that we can think of, when we think of somebody like a Bezos or a Musk or something like that, or you know, even, even the, you know, this older crowd of people like a Bill Gates, or um, who's the, uh, the investment guy, the Oracle of Omaha? <laughs> oh, uh, uh, so with the W. Um, Warren Buffett. So when we, th- when we think of somebody like Buffett as well, these are people that we associate with a great deal of work. They're doing – they're a lot of times the, the wealthiest people in our society are actually working as hard or harder than most other people. I mean, Elon Musk is you – know, he's, he's you know, regularly puts in, you know, at least according to you know, what most people are saying about him. You know, I don't hear anybody saying that he's lying when he talks about working – 80 plus hours a week. You know, here we have this example of the richest person in the world works more than most everybody else does. Though, of course, he's not working billions of dollars. Well, but, but see, th- this, is, <laughs> but this, this is how this narrative plays in. And I, I, I don't disagree with you. This is, I don't think anybody is, is working hard enough to earn that amount of money. But he deserves it because he is working so hard. That same story that everybody gets, like yeah. you said, everybody gets what they deserve. This is all part of this system and that he is virtuous because of his actions, because of the work that he does in the world. And it's the same thing with with somebody like Bezos or name the billionaire, you know, Peter Thiel, you know, like or Jack Ma in China. You know, it's like whatever, whoever the person is, they got what's coming to them. And and it's it is by its nature treated as if it's just. Yeah, this is what he deserves. These poor people who work so much, there's the, the, they're not seen the same way. They're seen as if they, they didn't work right. They didn't do it correctly. And yeah. that's, that's where they're failing. You know, so you have also this sort it's of- It's almost uh, a no true Scotsman argument to a certain degree. Yeah. The, you have this exaltation of slyness or cunning. And, and so Elon Musk works hard, but he works smart. And that's why he deserves all of this. And the person with three jobs, you know, at the, you know, and working at the restaurant and being a janitor and then, you know, like doing task rabbit or something like that or delivering pizzas, they didn't work smart. They're working hard, but they're working stupidly. So they, they deserve exactly what they're getting. You know, that's, that's their station in life and everything's warranted. We can examine the, the idea of, how many people have to be working in such a way where in the United States, for example, uh, we have uh, 40% of the population that cannot afford an unexpected $400 expense. Right. And 44% are considered low-wage workers in the United States. I mean, that that really kind of speaks to the idea of this is this is really a game of musical chairs here. 
Um, but really not the, the crux of this, though. I mean, we can talk about capitalism for days and days and days. But here we're, we're interested in, in what is the ethos that's driving this, this, this system. Uh, what do we need to believe to continue to do what we're doing? And prior to capitalism, at least as Weber was describing it, uh, we had artisans and craft persons uh, who were maybe working six hours a day or something like that. Um, but it was it was much more leisurely. You work until it's done and then you quit kind of an attitude, mm-hmm. uh, which we still to a certain degree see today in certain areas of Europe, like we we're describing. What really shifted here is the asceticism that was the foundational role in this ethic that drove this sort of self-suffering idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, Weber said, asceticism looked upon the pursuit of wealth as an ends in itself as highly reprehensible, but the attainment of it is a fruit of labor in a calling was a sign of God's blessing. So here Weber's telling us that uh, the, the idea was that if you're rich, it's because you deserve to be rich. Mm-hmm. And and uh, uh, looking for wealth for the sake of looking for wealth is abhorrent. But if you happen to get wealth, well, it's because God is blessing your your hard work. And we can understand here that they understand the individual as an instrument of God, uh, where all of their hard work is an expression of God. So he kind of goes on a little bit later. And even more important, the religious valuation of restless continuous systematic work in a worldly calling was the highest means to asceticism and at the same time the surest and most evident proof of rebirth in genuine faith must have been the most powerful conceivable lever for the expansion of that attitude towards life which we have here called the spirit of capitalism and i think that uh, i'll put a little bow tie on on weber uh with this quote uh he talks about towards the end of the book, the Puritan wanted to work in a calling. We are forced to do so. For when asceticism was carried out of the monastic cell into everyday life, it began to dominate worldly morality. And it did its part in building the tremendous cosmos of the moral economic order. Something I've always liked about the way that uh, that, that word that Weber uses, the spirit of capitalism, is that it evokes this idea of the the animus, this driving force that is moving capitalism forward. It's propelling capitalism along the way, and it it doesn't uh, it doesn't rely on a on a simplistic explanation of you know just simply calling it greed. And I, I I think that we can easily pass it off, like you were mentioning earlier, that this is just you know that that's all people are trying to do. I I personally have like I've never been convinced that greed motivates anybody. I, yeah. I you know I think that the that we have the we have a dual we have a uh we have a current system now where you know maybe Weber was was right in that time period but I think in addition to what what Weber was describing as a motivating force for capitalism is this uh this desire to to gain power over over one's life you know, it's a desire for for a person to try to somehow uh, gain more of what is really an illusion, but a convincing illusion that they control the the destiny in their life. So I think that you have this sort of this these 
two strains that are traveling together simultaneously. And, you know, at some point, you know, at one point, one is more influential. And then at another point, the other is. Sometimes people are, I, I think that, uh, that underneath the, 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 you know, maybe, you know, outside of their awareness, they're motivated for by trying to gain more power over others. They want to accumulate wealth so that they have more, they can, they can, uh, create what they think of as more stability in their lives. When they want to explain why they're great, they're, they're getting this wealth to others, or when they want to talk about what they admire in other people who have acquired wealth, then they start talking about virtues. Yeah, yeah this is exactly, but I don't think that's what's motivating them. I don't think what motivates most people is virtue. I don't think virtue itself is a motivator. It, this, I, I think we've got two things going on here. I think we have the undercurrent of of this unquestioned logic. I mean, yeah. when we talk about the we're, the phrase work ethic, right? We're just dropping uh, Protestant from in front of it, right? But there, there's only one worth at work ethic, right? That anybody is ever describing, and it's the one we're describing right now. And I think that the other component here is simple material necessity. Mm-hmm. Nobody's working at that minimum wage job for the joy of life. <laughs> no, and, and they're not doing it because. And, and th- this is another thing too. Is all right. So it, the you know we have a spectrum here. It's that, and this is you know this is really you know this the same spectrum of somebody satisfying their needs. But once you get to point of satisfying your needs, then then in relation to to your needs, extra work or extra money, just like the artisan or the you know the the peasant farmer that what you know like in you know before they could convince people to work more they only worked to the point that their needs were met and then any extra work didn't help them you know but now yeah. we, we've we've actually created a system where we've invented more things to quote need you know so the needs are are really never met you know the if you if you can keep working keep working all right now you have enough money to you know, pay for shelter, pay for food, maybe pay for transportation, maybe a couple of, 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 you know, luxury type desires, you know, unnecessary things, but things that you want. But then what about, you know, what about a college education for your children? What about, uh, buying a house? What about moving to a better neighborhood? All right. All of these are increases in needs. You know, these, the, all of these are increasing the bottom line of the, of just what it takes to live your life. And so we, we keep adding things to this. And then, you know, the, once we get done with that, then we're talking about any people who go beyond that point who are, are accumulating, uh, accumulating amounts of money that they could never possibly spend in their lives. There is no imaginary needs that you could ever come up with that would ever equal the amount of money that they have. But yet they continue to acquire wealth. For some reason, eighty-one billion dollars is enough. They want eighty-two or ninety billion. Yeah, this is really. I mean, those extreme examples, you know, really illustrate the idea. But you could roll it back to somebody that they have ten million dollars, but now they want to have fifteen. Yep. You can never spend this money, not in any sort of sensible way. Yes, there are things that you could buy that cost that that would take all of your money like a large, like a skyscraper or something like that. Yes, you could spend all of your money in a weekend, 
nobody's no nobody's nobody's doing this. So why do they keep earning? Why do they keep? Where does this desire come from to get more? And this is why I say that the real motivation for those people is to continue to try to uh, to try to reinforce this idea of of power over my own destiny, of self determination, that they somehow can make themselves exempt from the concerns of the world by accumulating more and more wealth. I, I think that that's a very different kind of motivation than the than the Protestant ethic. I think that this is that Protestant ethic is a is a story that we use to convince other people to work more. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 to and to suffer or to or to explain longer to, hours and Right, exactly. We want them to work harder, but this isn't like this sort of like top tier isn't uh you know, this top tier of of wealth is not I I don't think they're concerned with the virtue of their money in the same way that they would want somebody who is earning $30,000 a year to think about their money. And to shift it a little bit, we we might even observe that the middle tiers are really operating uh, on, on a consumption as identity. final wrap and like bring this into like I like bringing it into productivity porn because I, I really like the idea of focusing on these large these large prevailing concepts that not many people are willing to peel back sufficiently to understand how they drive large swaths of our lives yeah whole parts whole areas of our lives are being driven by this you know something that uh and I can just trail this out, you know, but like the one thing I wanted to mention is that in my own work experience, I have encountered this scenario a number of times of people sort of trying to guilt me into picking up an extra shift or yeah. work late or something like that. You know, can you stay a couple of extra hours because, you know, so-and-so called in sick tonight and now we need somebody for a while. Can you stay for a little bit? Can you work a double shift? It, it, they tend to lean on you with a couple of things. They will never come out and say, like, you know, will you do the virtuous thing? <laughs> but what they do yeah. is they'll try to uh, to convince you that you're doing it for the team. Can you help us out? Yeah. But you see, it is exactly the same argument, but just but but just packaged in in a more uh, attractive form, at least as far as they're concerned, and it works over and, and, and over and it's again. Always, and it's always in the context. Well, not always, but it's usually in the context of if you don't step up, you're hurting your fellow workers. It's never in the context of make the boss more money or or anything else or, you know, save my ass because I didn't I can't find somebody to cover this shift. Yeah. In this case, I worked at a hospital that was a county facility, so there was nobody making more money, but it was still the same kind of mentality. This is this is why I. I was trying to tie the the Protestant ethic to more of an over uh, like an overarching uh, virtue ethic that it yeah. is good to work more. You know, it is virtuous to work more. And then we can look at, well, 
other things are good too. Like being helpful, caring about your coworkers is also good. And if you don't do the, if you're not helpful, then you're not good. If you don't care about your coworkers and them being overburdened, you're not good. And so this is how we convince these people. You, you probably know about this firsthand, but if you start doing government work or nonprofit work, that is where they really get the hooks in you. <laughs> they that, sure do. Yeah. Especially with the, and then in, in the nonprofit, not for profit area where you're, you're doing, you're, you're doing something that is, that is a, a service to others. That if you don't do this, this, this overwork mentality, if you're not overdoing it all the time, it's because you don't really care about these people. You know, it's because don't you care enough about the cause? I mean, it's it's because Do you not believe it's because you're you know you're some sort of a of a tourist or a poser. You know that you're not you're not really in this for the right reasons. Because if you were yeah. in it for the right reasons, then you know you'd be putting in seventy hours a week like the rest of us are, and not getting caught, not getting paid overtime. You know because we really care. Exactly. This is the sort of thing that we do to each other, and in, in these situations, we don't value this this uh this time off and and it's like you were saying earlier uh, one's occupation is synonymous with their identity and and people have a really hard time with this in in the united states with even if you take vacation it's like you've done something to somebody you you've do you you you're mistreating <laughs> them somehow yeah that you can't even take time away from your your allotted vacation that is part of your benefit package as meager as it is you can't even leave Every you know because you feel guilty that everybody else is going to you know be overworked while you're gone. They're going to have to do your job while you're while you're gone. And not all environments are like this by any means. There's a there are a lot of environments that are I think you know the way that I see it much healthier. They're not nearly as dysfunctional as that. And I really see this as a dysfunction. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't know who said this, but yeah, like I I think at one point my father told me this. Yeah, no, nobody's gonna like go to their deathbed wishing they spent more time at the office. <laughs> That's great. This is not something somebody puts in on their tombstone saying like, "I'd wish I worked a few more hours." Yeah, but yet this is exactly how we live. We live as if we would say something like that. We, we, this is how we treat our jobs, and and so you know, like I have a um. You know, I've kind of a, a funny place for, you know, the follow your heart thing that I was making fun of earlier. We need to have, you know, a realistic idea of work as in the same way I was talking about, you know, this is the mentality of people that have less money, that they 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 work to get their needs met. They're not working to necessarily create some sort of sway over others or over their own circumstances. They're simply trying to get their needs met. Yeah. We, we, I think we need to have this mentality again where we are working enough to have a comfortable life and to not, you know to try to you know reduce the hardships that you know that that life brings us as much as we possibly can and no more yeah anybody who signs up for the idea that i you know the way i'm describing it is really like you know you're you're cutting yourself off from basically every career trajectory where you're going to get promoted at your job or you're going to get noticed for, you know, for how, you know, how well you did something or something like that, because that isn't your primary objective. And yeah, you know, I don't want to say follow your heart, but you might want to keep looking around for a job where 
the boss values something more in alignment with what your values are. And, yeah. and until you find that, you're probably going to have to do a lot of acting. You know, you're probably going to have to act as if you gave a shit about whatever your boss cares about, because that, I, that that's really a, that's a situation I've been I found myself in a, a lot over, you know, over my working life is caring about shit. I don't give a fuck about the concerns that that bosses have, you know, that employers have are very different than the concerns that employees have. They're, they're contradictory interests. They, they really can be. But sometimes you have to act like you care about that stuff. And then just turn that off as soon as you you walk out the door and go home. You know, as soon as you get off that Zoom call, you don't care about that shit anymore until you have to care about it again. There's a TikTok sound that's really popular right now. And it's this guy singing, cosplaying as a person who has their shit together. <laughs> you know, there, there was, speaking of TikTok, there was, there was one not too terribly long ago. And it was a guy at Ikea. <laughs> and he was talking about the kinds of conversations that he would have oh, with with one. customers and he did a series of these and they were then they were all stitched together and then they were spread on on other on other social on Instagram and Twitter yeah you know you want to talk to my manager i'd like to speak to your manager i'd like to speak to your mother tell her she should be embarrassed she raised someone to act like a baby in public you want to speak to the manager please manager doesn't know what's going on haven't you ever worked anywhere before <laughs> and, and i love that he has that scruffy face with the well he's good it's because he's mustache. no it's because he's no longer a tiktok or a, a tiktok and no longer an ikea employee he's also a stand-up comedian <laughs> but he kept the polo yeah so it's like <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Wetwired podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Wetwired, on Instagram, and you can find us individually on Twitter, on TikTok, on Instagram. I don't know where else are you, Julian? I'm on. Oh Facebook, yeah, yeah. Probably. You you might be able to find us on Facebook. I will never reply to any of your messages. Yeah, I may or may not add you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and if you uh, if you like this episode, make sure to tune in for the next one when we release it in a couple of weeks. And if you want to support us and help us to keep making more episodes, you can find us on Patreon at WetWired. That was fantastic. Cool. That was good. Oh, my. Dude. No. Did you do the thing that I did earlier? You got to be kidding me. No, nah, I'm just fucking with you. Got to reconcile those negative emotions. <laughs> that was the best gag. <laughs>
back to the Calvinist strand of Protestantism. So how has the idea of work evolved throughout history? It's changed dramatically. You know, it's funny, in the Garden of Eden, one of the punishments for man's sin was the idea of painful toil. So early rulers, early elites, looked at work as something the oppressed did. You had slaves to do work. That view held throughout history, pretty much. It changed somewhere because in the 1800s, if you ran for office, you might be a lead, but you want to make sure folks think at least you're a hard worker. You think of Lincoln as the rail splitter, that mm -hmm. image. So uh, why is it something of a sea change with the Protestant work ethic to sort of equate hard work and thriftiness as something that gives glory to God? Sure. It probably goes back to the Reformation. Mm -hmm. uh, Martin Luther said that the just shall live by faith. Well, that kind of discounted works, but the Calvinist strand said that we are, we are predestined. They believe that God has selected certain people, the elect. Well, that led to insecurity. How do you know if you're part of that elect? How do you know if you're saved? So in their mind, we think of proving to others our spirituality. They have to prove to themselves. They've got to prove to themselves, yes, we're elect. So one way is if we can live that lifestyle, that disciplined lifestyle, hard work, thriftiness, that would prove to ourselves we might be one of God's elect. That would lead to wealth accumulation. Mm -hmm. Well, if God allowed that, it must be okay. Mm -hmm. So this is fine. Work is fine. Work is great.